This podcast is brought to you by Shout Engine. In less than five minutes, you can start your own podcast for free with ShoutEngine.com. Okay, uh, cool. Well, once again, live from SEMA 2018 at the MagnaFlow stage, uh, this is the Hooniverse Podcast. And this week, we have uh, Joel McKay, VP of Mechanical Engineering at APR. And I am joined by a very special guest host this week of our friend Jason Pesky from Engineering Explained. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Pleasure hell- to be here. How's SEMA treating you boys so far? Oh, goodness. Uh, it's always a mess. It's fast, and I never see anything I feel like, but it's happening. It's awesome. It's good fun. Yeah, us hosty type people don't really get to see as much as we'd like to for the most part. Yeah, I got to do a little bit of walking around, but it's mainly just meeting and greeting, and, uh, you know, it's. I think it's more people every year. It's amazing. Hey, Joel, if we could just get you screwed up a little close to that mic. Sorry. Yeah, right. that's yeah, good. good. Um, so, APR, obviously, <laughs> uh, you guys are renowned for your tuning product lineup and uh also a lot of your really cool carbon parts and stuff like that's on that gt40 up front um what are you bringing new to the show this year that uh, you guys are really trying to push sure so kind of our theme for the show this year was uh we call it back to the track uh, apr has a a history of, of racing right we used to field our own race team we were uh, fielding seven cars at once at one point uh, we got out of professional racing but we want our customers to know that that racing was in, in our pedigree, mm-hmm. right? The products that we design are intended. Uh, yes, they can be used on your streetcar, but they're also proven on the racetrack, and they're capable of seeing those extreme conditions. Okay. And then you being the mechanical engineering guy there, uh, what uh, what's going to differ in your average street application versus the race application, so let's say for some of your suspension bits? Sure, sure. So... On, on the suspension, you know, right on the street, it's a compromise, right? It's a compromise between the comfort to the customer and, and the all-out performance on the track. So it's usually about dialing in um, dialing in that compromise. Now, we are working on some future upgrades that allow us to take advantage of the active dampening uh, that exists right. on a lot of the newer Volkswagens and Audis that we can actually recalibrate uh, those units and actually make a product that's uh, really, really good for the street, but also exceptional on track. Well, yeah, and that's that's nice just because, you know, it used to be um, track cars would just beat the hell out of you, uh, and street cars were always just too mushy in general. But sure, since sure. the advent of all the Magneto Rheological tech, it's been a really nice kind of middle ground. Like, I've got it I've got it in one of my cars now, and I absolutely love it. I don't know that I'll go back to it in a street car especially. Although fixed damping can be really nice on a race car, do you see that um, becoming more pervasive in kind of the amateur to mid I mean, high-end racing has had that for quite, quite some time, um, adjustive damping, you know, magnetically adjusted damping. Do you see that kind of coming down to the privateer level now? or I would certainly think so. I mean, it may, there may be an impedance with rules, right? But uh, certainly from a performance advantage, being able to dial in your, your dampening based on criteria, right, based on... Uh, you know, we, we were we were working with a partner right now where you can dial in criteria for your dampener based on what track you're at, right? You know, based on... So presets for, L, you know, Laguna yeah, versus going, VIR. And, yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
really, really incredible stuff, and it makes it makes a significant difference in lap times. Have you guys played with any of the GPS location-based damping as well, or? So our partner that we're working with has, uh, which is also yeah another cool, cool opportunity. Yeah. Now, so you can do that obviously based on position, assuming the track hasn't changed at all in the, in that time frame since it was last set up. Sure. Is there anything that you can do with, like, uh, LiDAR or computer vision systems in order to uh, adjust damping as well, or is that a little too, a little further off? Definitely coming, all right? I mean, the, the reaction time on these systems, you're, you're talking milliseconds, right? Some right. There, There's dampeners out now that are, are making adjustments, and I believe six milliseconds is what they're down to. So you definitely have the time to, you, to look ahead, especially through all the autonomous vehicle things that are coming. Eventually there's going to be some some parallels there and overlap so jason you've been getting a lot more press cars over the last few years here since when you first started the channel when it was strictly the whiteboard yeah and now you've got the press cars it's coming evolved in. what's um what's been your opinion of the the magneto relogical stuff over the last couple of years oh uh that's a good question i mean it's cool it's cool in that you know kind of like what you're saying to be able to tune it to i mean to have that ability to say this is your conditions this is our upper limit, this is our lower limit, we know that, and then to specify it and put it into a mode and say, this is VIR mode, that, like, that's pretty neat. I mean, you kind of do a, a compromise of that with street cars where you say, okay, here's the mode that you're driving in, and because of that, here's the upper limit, here's the lower limit yeah. that you want. Right, right. Um, so that's, it's neat. Um, I I wouldn't pretend to say that I am a good enough driver to always perceive it, um so i feel like but you know, know what you admitting that puts you ahead a lot of the press that's true that's true that's admittance so, is the first step <laughs> yeah i feel like it's a it's a challenging thing i mean there's a there's a lot of thought that goes into it and obviously you can see if one lap time is faster than another um and all you've changed is the variable of the suspension uh how much damping you have right um but but it is it is very difficult to perceive i think just uh driving road cars on a street and and especially because all of these cars are going to have different geometries, different spring rates. Um, and so simply having that, uh, you know, magnetic suspension alone um, is, is just a small part of it. And, and it's, it's difficult to perceive. I think it's cool, though, what the capabilities of it are. Yeah, it's, um, it, to me it's really interesting because now we've got that, the damping technology has basically become commoditized at this point because GM held that patent for a long, long time. And I believe that's why everybody has it now because it's expired. Well over twenty years at this point, I believe. So we're seeing it in a little bit of everything. Do you think that the that variable um, spring rates, you know, whether that's via air or another mechanism, are going to become the next commoditized item that we can really round that out to have a fully adjustable setup? It's possible. I mean, one one I think issue that a lot of people have with that is they're also trying to reduce weight in the suspension. I've seen a lot of people going towards composite or working towards a composite-based spring. So, you know, going to um, going to something that has an adjustable spring rate may, may be going the wrong direction in that regard, but it's certainly feasible. Yeah, I, it's, it's challenging. Um, it is cool, like, for example, the Ford GT, uh, it has a set of uh, two springs in series, and so you can choose to have... Do you use these two springs in series for the road? Gives you that comfort. You've decreased your spring rate. Or do you use just that single torsion bar uh, once you're on the track? So it is cool that it has those two different spring rate modes um, depending on what your use is. And obviously, you know, 
it lowers its ride height for the track use. And if you're going to lower your ride height, you need less suspension travel. And right. so it uses that stiffer spring. So that kind of thing is really neat to have a car that can do both worlds. But is it needed? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's just kind of you get in that it's super cool territory. It's cool some of the, uh, you know, some of the adjustable um, uh, 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 sway bars that have been coming into the Vogue that are, that are no longer just, you know, purely swapping your end links off and tweaking the little thing there, but are actually, you know, not, I shouldn't say infinitely adjustable, but are adjustable via whatever mechanisms are built in from the manufacturer to compensate for that. Because we used to get those systems where some adjustability, but then you'd have nothing changed in the sway bar, and you'd go like, something just doesn't feel right. Um, now well, it they do have I mean they do have like you're saying like infinitely adjustable with the electronic sway bars yeah. um, where you know you've got your max torque that it can possibly provide and then it's to zero because anywhere it can just kind of shut off and so anywhere in between is a possibility depending on you know the loading of that corner who's so. uh, just out of curiosity off the top of your head do you know who's doing that right now or um, there's a bunch I believe that have it I know Lexus has it in their you know higher end sedans um, BMW has used it. Um, I've not I've not paid attention to those systems specifically. Yeah, they. Uh, so I I know for example Lexus has it because um, there was actually a it actually might have been at SEMA but they had one pulled apart and so you could kind of see the the internals and they were showing you know their electronic uh, active sway bars um, and then I believe BMW may do it simply for uh, like a like a body control thing so that the body remains flat at all times right and then they they kind of have the wheels moving artificially. Uh, but it's a neat thing that well, they and use. then we have the king of it all, McLaren, that just goes, nope, no sway bars. Yeah, theirs is uh, quite complicated, except on yeah. the 570. They've got it on the 570, but that's you know, that's the that's the poor person's model. Right, yeah. right, right, yeah. right, right. That's the no one would be seen in that. Yeah. Uh, so Joel, so you've got the suspension bits. What um, what are you guys really pushing here as cars new ECU tuning solutions sure. and stuff like that? Because that's really what you're. I mean. You guys build a lot of stuff, but the ECU tuning, I think, is probably what you're most famous for. Yeah, definitely. Our forte in general is engines. Right? Yeah. Engine performance is definitely the, the, the primary focus of APR, and uh, that's both through a product line of software and mechanical hardware. Right. So uh, software is, is the, the bread and butter of it, as you mentioned, which is taking the factory engine controller, recalibrating it to the, the hardware limits that come with the vehicle. So we spend a tremendous amount of time um, finding what these true limits are for heat and pressure and other factors, building in, uh, building into the calibration uh, what we feel comfortable safety factors are, and building in compensations that keep uh, keep the vehicle and the engine safe on the road or or track, uh, and then delivering that that product to the customer. But with the majority of the platforms we work on being turbocharged. Uh, there's always a considerable amount of uh, increase we can have without changing hardware. Now, you know, just the fact that you guys work on predominantly turbocharged stuff, clearly your market has opened up quite wide over the course of the last few years. Sure. Um, sure. And you have historically been known more or less for products that came out of the VW Auto Group. Mm -hmm. um, what what else has become a focus over the course of the last couple of years? Yeah, so... Uh, Volkswagen and Audi has grown considerably over the last few years, and as a result, we've been we've been kind of riding kind of riding on those coattails a bit, so keeping up with those platforms. Uh, but for us, one of the big initiatives as far as a new brand is uh, uh, getting back into Porsche. Porsche is obviously in the VAG family, uh, but Porsche is something that we strayed away from about 
eight, eight or nine years ago just due to a lack of resources and the growth of Volkswagen Audi. So now with Porsche moving to Turbo DI for, for basically everything but the GT3, um, it, it makes obvious sense for us to get back in. And I love hearing that because yeah. I just purchased my first Porsche a few months ago. Which was? I bought a used Macan. Ah, very cool. Nice. Which, which uh, three liter, three point six? It's a liter? three liter. Okay, uh, it was cool. a three liter. I couldn't quite justify the extra fifteen grand for the sure, turbo. Sure, sure. Uh, well, although they're all turbo, they're all turbo. Is, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, misleading. Yeah, or as an old podcast title, I said turbo, but not turbo. Yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, and I love that thing. Uh, it's been great. It's just, uh, you know, I know you guys already have. You have the tune out <laughs> for the four cylinder one. Yeah, we have the four cylinder. Is that more or less the um, the Golf R drivetrain? No, it's no. The, it's the B nine Audi B nine A four drivetrain. Oh, Q, really? Q five. Uh, Audi A4, so yeah, it's the same same general engine as the Golf R, but the engines turn longitudinally versus transverse. How much did they leave on the table with that? Uh, I, I believe we were able to pick up about fifty to sixty wheel horsepower safely. Um, so it's, it's a <laughs> on an all-wheel drive system, nonetheless. It's, it's considerable amount. Okay, and that still has the that that's not like running a cheaper derivative of PDK. That's full PDK on that, right? I believe. You know, I actually think the two-liter. The two liter is not PDK. It's a version of Audi's um, Audi's uh, uh, dual clutch transmission, which is uh, would be considered a DL three eighty two, I believe. Okay. So it's it's more of a version of that. So I'm guessing that with that fifty horsepower bump, you're really close to the gap between the, the regular liter. base model and the S. Yeah, yeah, you're closing okay. it. Yeah, it's about three hundred wheels what you end up with. Okay, which is about what an S is from the factory. Yeah. Okay, that's impressive. Are you guys planning on moving up to the six-cylinder stuff, too? Or? Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, okay. Right now, uh, we have a Cayman GTS in-house, uh, which is obviously the four-cylinder. But the ECU family, the engine controller family that's used in the Cayman, the two-and-a-half-liter and the two-liter, is very similar, if not the same, as what's used in the six-cylinder Macans and the six-cylinder Carreras. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what. If you ever want a Macan, I'll drive we, one right to your door. We know a guy. All right, good, <laughs> good. I like it. That's I don't good care if I got to go from California. That's good. To I'll know. leave it with you guys. There's yeah. some good hands there. Yeah. If nothing else, we can hook you up with software. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, okay, so you're working on those. Uh, I assume then the natural extension off that would probably be the 911s. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every, every model they have, but the GT3 is, like I said, it's turboed now. And, and it's, unfortunately, it makes, makes and I say unfortunately because I love it having the character of the normal aspirated motor. The uh, GT3 is going to go turbo as well. You know, probably not this next gen, but the yeah. one after that. Well, you know, they, yeah, you reach a point where once you need over 500 horsepower, you know, what's, well, what are you going to do? I mean, there gets to be limits with with you're going to get with normal aspiration with a four liter motor. You know, I, I thought they may go to some extreme measures to make the car lighter, right? Uh, but, yeah, you know that that might be another direction, but. It'll be interesting to see. It could go hybrid too. Are I they mean, back yeah. to manual transmission in that, or is that gone for? Yeah, good you can now? get a manual again. Okay, it's back. It's Just hard, not in the it's RS. Hard to get. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. not in the RS. And of course, they've okay. got the they've got the GT3 Touring out now too, which is oh god, that thing is yeah. fantastic. It's all yeah. the GT3 with none of the show. Yeah, it's yep. the best of the best. It's yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Oh man. So what's the uh, what's your favorite project that you're working on uh, these days over at APR? You know, overall, uh, APR has seen a tremendous growth in our exhaust product line and it's not one particular project in general in the exhaust but we apr used to private label all of our exhaust systems everything from the turbo to the exhaust tip was a private label we had uh, essentially no influence over the design uh the the, the visual the cosmetic appearance of the system and we've now brought 100 percent of that in-house 
Uh, we now have 12 full-time TIG welders. Uh, I mean, we're, we're doing a tremendous amount of systems. I think, I uh, forget the number, but the, the amount we're doing next year relative to uh, when we started this three years ago is just incredible. So it's, it's exciting for me to, to see that product line grow. And I think if you look at our exhaust systems, which uh, some, some of them are in our booth in Central Hall, uh, there's a distinct difference between our systems and every, all the other systems out there. Right. And so I've, I've enjoyed that. Well, I mean, it's meant to work holistically with your tune and everything else that you guys sell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jason, how much how much experience do you have with uh, working on, like, tuned turbo cars and things like that? Uh, extremely minimal. So I, I do have a Honda S2000, which is supercharged, not turbocharged. It's a uh, centrifugal supercharger. Is that a Vortec uh, or something? Or Yeah, it's a Vortec. Those are good superchargers, man. Those are really it good It is, and it's just got a little piggyback right now. It's running on stock injectors, um, so it's very basic, very simple. 80 horsepower added to an S2000, which is a solid amount. Uh, well, would, on a car that light. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I did have a question, though, for you uh, uh, okay. regarding tuning, because it's a question that I think comes up all the time, and I think it's good to have uh, a more credible answer than <laughs> what I might type. And so... A lot of people say, you know, like, <clears throat> you change a very minor thing on your car, and perhaps, like, for example, your exhaust could be a, a good uh, one to, to speak on, but let's say you just change an air filter. You just change, you know, the intake system, and that's it up until the manifold, just the filter. Is is that not something that an ECU can just automatically calibrate for and say, look, this is what air I'm getting, this is what fuel I put in? Or is that actually something that, because you've made a small change, you can take advantage of through additional tuning? So it depends. It depends. First of all, uh, some cars still have a mass airflow sensor. Others don't. They use a speed density calculation. Uh, so for a car that has a mass airflow sensor, if you change anything related to uh, the air filter, uh, the exhaust, or you even go into the engine internals and you change the volumetric efficiency of the engine, you still have an airflow sensor. So the sensor is going to understand this is how much air is entering the engine. This is how much fuel I should supply. Things should be okay. Uh, you do change other factors on a turbo car, such as boost control. But aside from that, the engine should, should understand that, okay, this is how much air I have coming in. Now, interestingly enough, uh, most vehicles uh, in today's world use a torque management system that says, this is how much torque I want to make. And the engine or the ECU knows in order to make this much torque, I need this much airflow, right? It can, it can make that correlation because they've already mapped those values. So if it sees an increase in airflow, especially in a turbocharged car, it's going to automatically just dial it back. Okay. Right? It's looking for that so amount of airflow. Rather than the backwards way we used to do it where we'd look at throttle position and look at timing and everything like that to, to create a torque number, we're actually going and deriving the torque number. From all the other variables before. From airflow, from uh, VE, from ignition, from everything. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, further to that, on a speed density car that's using manifold pressure, uh, intake air temperature, and, and volumetric efficiency of the engine, uh, and also exhaust back pressure, when you change those things, yes, it matters. It matters greatly. So that's why all, so all of the new Volkswagens use a speed density calculation, which has significant advantages over an airflow sensor. Uh, it's, it's arguably more accurate, and airflow sensors can be prone to fail. But unfortunately, when you do make a change that affects one of those variables, usually VE or, or back pressure, the calculation's wrong, right? So 
the and, and the way this works, the factory, they they calibrated this engine with an airflow sensor, mm-hmm. okay, and then they took those values and they made a speed density model, right, to show that all of these variables equal this airflow, and they created a three-dimensional map accordingly. Right. Well, you can break that. <laughs> so what is the fundamental difference between a MAF sensor and a speed density sensor? Sure. So um, a MAF car, mass airflow, has a physical sensor that measures the amount of air entering the engine. Usually, uh, the majority of them have this, it's called a hot film mass, where the air is actually cooling down a, a, a metal strip, and based on that um, based on that rate of heat transfer, it can calculate airflow. So is it basically then just measuring resistance across that? Yeah, it, it, it's measuring the uh, temperature change. Okay. And from that temperature change, it can, it can calculate airflow. A speed density car, again, uses manifold pressure, uh, the temperature of the air, a modeled volumetric efficiency of the engine, and a modeled exhaust back pressure. And if it knows all of those things, it knows airflow. Okay. So. so what would then the difference be? Okay, so let's say you put on this filter that somehow al- allows for more air to come in. What would the difference be between uh, the the mass or the the map sensor seeing that versus say you just drop in elevation a little bit and now you have higher pressure simply because you have denser air? Sure. How sure. is it able to differentiate between those? Yeah. On on uh, either one of those scenarios. Because you're changing it pre-math, it, it actually doesn't care. So you're okay on the filter side of things. Because if you change a filter on a math car, you're, you're going to pick up that airflow. So on a, on a map Joel, car you're instead. you a little okay. bit. So. Yep. On, a, on a manifold absolute pressure sensor, using in those two scenarios, let's say you drop an elevation or you change a filter that somehow allows for more air, it's less restrictive. Yeah, either of those scenarios is still okay on a speed density car because your the inlet side of things, anything prior to manifold pressure, isn't a part of the calculation. Okay. So it doesn't it doesn't care in that regard. It's only after the manifold pressure sensor. So any changes to VE of the engine, exhaust back pressure. That's where you get in trouble. Okay. So on the intake side, to your original question, yeah, you, you'd actually be safe. Okay. But if if then you were to swap an exhaust. Yeah. So you are you guys are looking at a car and when you're when you're designing your exhaust for it, you then have a, a tune designed specifically for that exhaust. That's correct. Yeah, because our goal in an exhaust system, like everything we do is turbocharged, right? So we're in order for a turbo to operate, it needs a pressure differential across the turbine. So you have a lot of pressure in the manifold and ideally you have virtually no pressure after the turbine, right? That gives you the largest uh, delta P as possible, and also you don't have a restrictive exhaust system. Mm-hmm. But if you change that system to be less restrictive, which of course is, is what we do, uh, then you've broken the back pressure model that the OEM had built in the ECU. So you've got to, you've got to update that. Yeah, it's um, I, and, it, and it looks to me, I mean, and, and you know much better than I can, but it looks like the the delineation between going speed density versus going mass airflow seems to be broken pretty evenly across normally aspirated versus turbo at this point. Yeah, and speed density is absolutely used on naturally aspirated cars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they do. I, I, I see merits to both. Um, like I said, I, we don't. The, the one problem we always ran into with a mass airflow sensor car is inaccuracy of the reading. 
dirty so, sensors. I mean, yeah, those sensors. stupid oiled filters that people like. Well, and also to your point about changing an air filter, when you change the air filter or let's say the entire cold air intake and you change the location or the, the trajectory of the air as it sure. hits as it hits the sensor, then you've changed the reading. Yeah. Right? It's it's critical that you end up with the same cross section or else you have to rescale that, that table in the ECU. But even even if you keep the same cross section, who's to say that your sample of air is hitting the sensor the same way? It's it's or a pain. my favorite pain. is back in the nineties when, you know, mass airflow sensors were you know, they were placing them right in front of the bottles, right in the plastic intake systems, and then people would take, like, the little honeycomb sections that were supposed to straighten mm-hmm. that airflow, and they'd yank them out, and they go, I don't understand That's why my car's running like shit. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You need, um, we, we learned back in the day, and it's probably a, 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 a aerodynamic or a, a fluid flow rule, but you need approximately, like, whatever your width is of those little honeycombs, you need approximately 10 times that length to actually straighten the airflow. So we always question, like in some cases it was a straightener, in some cases we almost wondered if it was just like a, a screen of some, you know, just keep after shit the out. Filter, yeah, yeah, yeah a know. mechanical filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Is um so out of the um out of all the stuff that you're working on right now, what is your favorite engine family that you guys work on? Oh wow, um, you know the the four liter Audi stuff is exciting. Right, you have you have two turbos right there in the That's V. That's the RS7 motor, right? Yeah, two yeah. turbos right there in the V. You're staring at them when you pull the engine cover off. Uh, it makes you know makes torque for days. It's it's hard not to get excited about that. However, probably the latest greatest is the new Audi five cylinder. Uh, I mean, oh, we God. that motor's been Audi's always built a hell of a five cylinder. They've engine. always built a good five cylinder, and now they finally have a five cylinder that's coupled with a proper transmission. So they have uh, a dual clutch seven speed, and the cars are just blistering fast. A few days ago, uh, we just set a world record for the first nine second Audi RS3 with a stock turbo. Nine second stock turbo. Yeah. Well, it's the RS3 that has it, and it's the TTRS, right? Correct. It's a shame they don't put it in more stuff because that motor. Yeah, tell me about it. I think I think I will. I think I hope. Right, they see the um, they see the, the the following behind it, and they decide to do so. I would I would like to see it longitudinally in something as well. But well, there was talk about it some t- for some time of it being a base R eight engine. Right, right, right. Uh, which I suppose could happen. Yeah, especially they, for some like some markets like China and stuff like that, sure. where you get your you know taxed by displacement. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, but uh, what are the upper limits of that motor? Because that thing, every time I see it, and usually from projects from you guys, it's just making stupid power. Yeah, but we, ha- we haven't found it yet. We've made, uh, the most we've made is 705 at the wheels. Oh, my. And, that's and what's a, the displacement on that? Two and a half liters. That's what I thought. That's the stock engine that we made. That it's, a, they've, it's now an aluminum block engine. So it's aluminum block, uh, and uh, it's holding together. So uh, I can't believe, I mean. I can't believe they put the resources into re-engineering that and bringing the newer uh, five-cylinder market because I didn't think that they would have been able to justify it from a cost basis. It's it's amazing. The previous five-cylinder, which was only in the TTRS, uh, well, they had an RS3 in the rest of the world. Um, you know, the, yeah, the volume it, it it wasn't that high. So I, I, I'm with you. I'm surprised. I'm I'm I'm, I'm fortunate. Uh, there's I'm there's some geeky group inside the Audi guy inside the Audi headquarters that's just championing this thing right, right have you had the chance to play with those motors yet i have not i haven't been an rs3 or a ttrs oh man no. it is a fantastic and, and that five cylinder it's 
I mean, it sounds exactly like half the 10-cylinder that it is. It's gnarly. It's fantastic. It sounds so much better than all the other four-cylinder. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And it's so weird. It's just that little difference mm-hmm. in the firing pattern. Mm-hmm. It's oh, makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And it's, and I, I don't know, it just doesn't seem like, yeah, the four-cylinders are pretty stout, but they're not at that same level. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we made on the, the four-cylinder iron block, the current one, we've made about 580 at the wheels. And we we were out of turbo at that point. It's capable of Yeah, because of more. you did that in the Golf R, right? Yeah, it, you know, it's capable of more, but they start they start to have issues at that point. Where do they start failing? Uh, usually, DI engines in general uh, seem to be a little tougher on pistons, uh, pistons okay. and ring stacks. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, combustion events that are occurring outside of what you want to happen <laughs> that uh even even the oe is still having trouble with even on stock output cars so uh di offers a lot of advantages but it also it, it creates a significant complexity that didn't that we didn't used to have so. well you've got i mean you've got so much more fine control over injector pulses and things like that that you know i just had um gentleman on earlier from a company that specializes in e85 uh sensors mm-hmm. and uh and he was talking about especially when they're dealing with like porsche stuff they're like there's nothing more complex in terms of fuel injection on the market they're like they'll do five different pulses modulated sure. at sure. different rates depending upon throttle position depending yeah. upon you know yeah. uh, the climate it's, and yeah the 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 timing of the injection of fuel the way you do it like you like you said multiple pulses has a significant effect on what's going on inside that cylinder. It's it's amazing, and you can get some really unwanted effects that things like a knock sensor doesn't even pick up. That can be very. Is it uh, just kind of like micro knock, if you will? Eh, yeah, that's one way to put it. Are are events that take place at very random times? Uh, maybe maybe like after peak cylinder pressure, for instance, you get some you get some. Uh, Maybe it's resonance, or maybe it's some other things that are going on. But it's just it's it's. Hell so you're telling me the technology behind direct injection is not perfect. <laughs> that I'm, would be an accurate statement. I'm shocked. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I am shocked. Yeah, that would be accurate. So okay, so you guys specialize in that world. Is there any of the other stuff that any of the other manufacturers you're starting to dip your toes in with, or um, playing with, or even just considering or find interesting? Well, you know, for for 2018, uh, APR. Uh, released, we released our own line of uh, wheels, brakes, and then suspension components. So even though we specialize in, in engine and transmission, what we're trying to do is basically build, uh, build a brand that has everything, right? A customer can come to us and build an entire package vehicle. Uh, we don't pretend to specialize in those things. We don't really want to. Uh, and what we've been doing instead is finding uh, really, really good technical partners that help us develop those particular products. That way, we can complete the brand. Yeah, it's uh, well, and I should bring up is that GT40 out front. You, you guys built that wing for at the last minute to get them out of the, to get them out of a bind, and that uh, yeah came out as a very nice piece. I will say, was that a one-off? I think that was another one. Oh, what? Oh, okay. You don't. You know what it was? Is it somebody else misnamed it? And that's not that's not on you. That's on the person that gave me the information. <laughs> so, no problem, no problem. Yeah, I actually think I know who it was now. 
Yeah. Uh, you probably do too. There's yeah, similar-ish I, I names. Yeah, similar-ish yes, names. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, just mis- misquoted. Yeah. Because I was like, I didn't think that was you guys, but <laughs> who knows? I mean, you do have fabricators. We do have carbon. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Does LSPI play a role in your in your tuning now? Like, it just feels to be like a hot topic now. And, well, and what do you, what do you do about it? I mean, like it's it seems to be um, low speed pre ignition. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems to be something that's somewhat understood right <laughs> i mean it's it's uh our my, our calibrators uh all vastly more talented than myself sent me this long document on it and i'm like i got a few pages in i'm like I, i'm i'm lost I, I don't i don't know what we're talking about here but it's it is serious i mean there's these com- combustion events that occur and they are absolutely just wild in in terms of the damage they can cause and well, you have no I'm, idea what's happening we call i mean the pre-detonation is the common term that most people use for that sure sure you but know. specifically in di right this 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 yeah. low, it's, it's happening you know typically pre-detonation was always something that you would tune for based on ignition advance at wide open throttle yeah right? that's why we had knock sensors is catch, right yeah this is this is happening while your cruise control is set at 70 miles an hour Right. This is something, some phenomenon that's occurring. I, I may well, have felt that in one or two unnamed Korean brand vehicles. Uh, well, and, and what the OEM is, one of the things they're doing to, to combat it is if you look at a DI piston, almost every single one below the top ring land, there's a steel band. Mm-hmm. It's there to basically, wow. you know, be, be, the, be the punching bag for when this happens. Well, and they're adding, so the new uh, American Petroleum Institute API SN Plus is going to be the newest version for, you know, stamp of approval for motor oils. And the only thing I believe added to that is LSPI testing, and you have to pass a certain thing. So I was speaking with one of the oil companies, and they were saying they changed their, uh, I believe it was their dispersant from uh, a calcium base to a magnesium base, and simply calcium causes lspi like that's one thing that has been found to okay, so, make it worse okay yeah. so that is so what is actually what is actually causing the detonation what is the core cause is or is that kind of like that's a beautiful question yeah, yeah nobody yeah. really knows is but, that but he but he's absolutely right lubricants tend to tend to play a big role so yeah the, okay. oil, the oil companies are definitely after anything they can do to help prevent it so inevitably it's it's part of the cause but i don't think it's it's probably not the only thing well, yeah. obviously it isn't because it didn't happen in uh, port injection cars. Well, so it, on that same subject, then has the advent of widespread direct injection gone and uh, really changed uh, the way that rings wear and how maybe oils being washed off the walls of the cylinders? Is that is that markedly different? Uh, yeah, I mean, short answer is yes. The way okay. the engine operates and the the effects on the piston uh, are are dramatic. Uh, so, it has its advantages, but uh, they they don't come without without problems. Okay. Now we've seen uh, we're seeing a lot of stuff um, where we're seeing hybrid solutions now between port injection and direct injection. Specifically, the most recent one that I can think of is the LT5 motor, where GM just could not get a heavy enough duty cycle out of their direct injection that they added that. We're also seeing that to help combat uh, carbon buildup. Um, is the carbon buildup as much of an issue in the VW world as it is? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Because Any, like I have, a, I have a VSVST at the house too, and at thirty thousand miles, it's got signs of carbon buildup on the back of those valves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you're pulling vacuum on the crankcase, right, to to evacuate crankcase pressure, 
Uh, and when you're doing that, the way they're doing that is through the intake manifold, and they're pulling any of that any of that crankcase junk, usually oil, of course, mm-hmm. right into the intake manifold. They they try to do a, di- a decent job of separating it, but yeah. they can't. So you've got oil hitting the back of the intake valve, and you've got no fuel to spray it off. Yeah, it's a big problem. And, and one thing that's, you know, on that subject is that's uh, debated quite a bit is, are catch cans worth it? The short answer is yes, yes. Okay. We, um, catch cans are absolutely worth it, especially if you can completely... You know, if you can completely eliminate the possibility of crankcase oil getting into your intake manifold, it's a good thing. Yeah, I actually saw a study recently that I thought, like, this is, like, so definitive in, in kind of answering that question. But they looked mm-hmm. at uh, deposit buildups with and without having the crankcase ventilation system um, right. functioning. And, and so they, the, the intake valves that are on, you know, the inward side, so there's two valves for each cylinder, one of those is going to obviously be closer to where that crankcase vents in. So when the air comes in, the heavier molecules are going to go to that closer valve. And they saw right. on all four pistons or all four cylinders, the, the valve that was closer on the closer side to that crankcase ventilation system had significantly more deposits uh, running. So it's, yeah. It's, I mean, it makes sense. And, yeah. you know, I, I've anecdotally, I've seen the benefit on, on projects that I've worked on on the cars that I've owned. It's, uh, it's just one of those things that's always up. You know, it seems to just be debated ad nauseum on on forums, and we know what we know what you know wealths of information forums are these days. Great uh, resource, yeah. Sort of right. Large dose of sarcasm lots, there. Yeah, lots uh, of accuracy and fact. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's funny though. Some some of them are actually much more useful than others. Sure, they, sure. Very different communities, you know. Um, yeah, but, you can uh, find great stuff on them for sure. Yeah, you can. It's usually in the road race section. It's usually where you find it. You know. Uh, not in the uh, hey, how do I uh, how do I install a stereo in my uh, in my O7 Lexus? You know, um, okay. So we're at SEMA. We're at the spectacle of all of this automotive, uh, all of this automotive world. What is it that if you can get out of the booth for half a day that you want to go around and uh, take a look at? So for me, uh, you know, I, I love going over to the performance pavilion. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's probably just the engineering geek in me, but I love going over there because those guys, they're new to the show. Uh, they have a, a special eagerness that I'm not saying the people in the main halls don't because we're in the main hall, and I think we're eager. But well, This is very, very big, very commercial, large Yeah, scale. and they're, they're new. They're excited to be here. They have products that you may not have seen before. So I just appreciate their enthusiasm and appreciate seeing new faces. All right, Jason, what uh, about you? I know you're... You're locked down kind of like I am with various meetings and interviews and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, no, but, uh, like, I, I kind of, I don't know, it's overwhelming, right? There's there's infinite stuff here. Every car company from the smallest to the largest is here. And so, to me, I, I get more excited about kind of the more personal things. And one of the stories that I've kind of been following, Chris, be as for build, he's mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, and he's got his 240 here, which he put a V10 BMW uh m5 drivetrain in which is a great motor as long as it's running yeah so it's i i'd like to go check that out i think that seems like a pretty neat I, build i, I love cool. that engine it's one he's of the best sounding the, engines ever built yeah he's at the koenig booth i believe um okay. but he's been working on that project for the past year and you know it finally all came together very last minute as sema builds do yes. but it yes. but it seems like it's functional it's running and it looks pretty sick i, I was cool. really hoping rob was going to be able to get his rx7 here <laughs> but it didn't happen i mean that's a very ambitious project, to say the least. Yes. Uh, I assume you've seen that, Joel? I have not. Okay, so he's doing an all-wheel drive 
four rotor. Oh, R- I, R- I take it back. I did see it last yeah. year because yeah. he had it was partially done last year, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually was speaking with him before this. He's waiting on some carbon fiber. He's yeah. going to have pure carbon fiber drivetrain, so all the half shafts and the drive shaft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's going to be pretty yeah. sick. It is ridiculous. <laughs> it is absolutely ridiculous, and that's why I love that project. Very cool. Very you know, cool. And of course. Uh, you know, we've got our friend uh, Freddie that's always got uh, all kinds of fun projects going on, a.k.a. Taprish. Yeah. So, um, all right, guys. Well, uh, we're coming up on the end of our time here, and we have people sitting on our monitors at the end of the stage, so that's not working out very well. <laughs> uh, so we're going to wrap this up. And once again, this is uh, Hooniverse Live from SEMA 2018 at the MagnaFlow booth. i got to thank the guys at, C- at uh, MagnaFlow for setting us up with this space, also helping us out with uh, getting the recording booth set up in the back. And uh, that's, it for, uh, that's it for this episode of Hooniverse. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate you both making it here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.